we should be a little bit concerned about who actually is the audience of this trial. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts. I'm Stephanie van den Berg and I'm recording this show as ever with Janet Anderson. Hi, Janet. Hi, Stephanie. Well, for this episode that uh, we're making with the support of JusticeInfo.net, we're going to assuage a guilty feeling, at least my guilty feeling, that um, I haven't been looking at a case that started this summer at the International Criminal Court, and that's the Al Hassan case from Mali. Uh, we have two guests to catch us up. We have help by women's rights expert Georgiana Epure, and she's an expert in uh, international law and has worked for lots of organizations. Hi, Georgiana. Hi, thank you for having me. And uh, let's just be clear to people who might uh, Google her later and see that she's written for um, Justice Monitor, for example, that she's joining us in her personal capacity. And we also have uh, Thijs Bauknecht, which I just love saying, what a Dutch name, Bauknecht, historian of mass violence and transitional justice at NEOD, which is the Institute for War, Holocaust and Genocide Studies. Hi, Thijs. Hi. Uh, as we said, we haven't been following this trial closely, but let me, Stephopedia, you with what I do know. Uh, this is the second trial of a Malian jihadist. His full name is Al Hassan Ag Abdul Aziz Ag Mohammed Ag Mahmoud, uh, which we're never going to use, and so we're just going to refer to him as Al Hassan. He faces war crimes charges and crimes against humanity charges for the period of 2012 to 2013, when Islamic fundamentalists took over parts of Mali's volatile northern region, including the famed city of Timbuktu. Um, Timbuktu is an ancient center of Islamic scholarship that had its golden age in the 15th and 16th century and has extraordinary mosques and shrines of ancient Islamic saints and libraries. But if we get to the case, Thais, what are the charges against Hal Hassan? Uh, and specifically, what does the prosecution say his role was? Yeah, so Mr. Al-Hassan faces about a dozen of charges, um, mostly crimes against humanity and, and war crimes. Um, and what is sort of specific about the case is that he's been charged with torture, rape, sexual violence, other inhumane acts and, um, and persecution. And basically the story that the OTP is sort of telling in this case is that Al-Hassan was a leader of uh, the Islamic police in Timbuktu, and that in that role he was sort of carrying out a a persecution on um, gender and on religious grounds as a member of Ansar al-Din and al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. And so to, to kind of zoom back out a little is that in this 2012-2013 uh, uh, period, Islamic militants took over Timbuktu and then, according to the prosecutor, set up a kind of uh, Islamic um, state in Timbuktu where they set up also Islamic police that would go around and tell women how to dress and uh, also set about destroying the famed uh, mausoleums and mosques and libraries because it wasn't, according to them, compatible with the Islamic uh, learning, I think. Well, that's what I remember from the first jihadist case of Al-Mahdi. 
um, who took a plea deal basically in 2016 and was eventually sentenced to uh, nine years for his role in destroying cultural heritage. How is this Al Hassan case different from uh, the Al Mahdi case? It's it's different in so many ways, actually. Um, first of all, Al Hassan sort of denies everything that he's being accused of, which of course is different from from Al Mahdi, who, as you said, entered into a plea agreement and was only charged with destroying nine mausoleums and and the door of a mosque. So the the charges were also relatively small, I would say. Um, obviously, Al Hassan is is a is is a guy who was a little bit higher up than Al-Mahdi. Um, and Al-Mahdi actually is also scheduled to be a witness in the Al-Hassan case. And therefore, he also faces more charges. And I think the prosecutor in July, when she opened the case and was um, doing the opening statements, also said that in the Al-Mahdi case, they sort of took a very short way of getting a, a prosecution and a conviction. And in this case, they just want to broaden the scope and also include other other types of charges. And I think really what she's focusing on in this case is, uh, is the sexual and gender-based violence, which, as you said, during the occupation of Timbuktu was one of those uh, those key atrocities, I would say, of, uh, of Ansar al-Din and uh, al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. So far, however, they haven't talked about these crimes yet. Um, we're now into the 14th witness, so we still have to see when these topics actually um, are going to be discussed in the trial. My uh, cue, I think, to ask you, Georgiana, about uh, these sexual and gender-based crimes, and uh, you kind of previewed this um, and looked at what the specifics are there. Can you try and unpack it a bit for us? And Because uh, I, I need to understand what's the difference between a I mean, as far as I understand, the difference between a sexual crime and a gender-based crime. What, what, what is it that the prosecutor is saying that, that happened? So to understand this, I think it's um, important to go back to the document containing the charges, charges against Al-Hassan and look at uh, what um, Al-Hassan is, is charged with. And that is being part of an armed group uh, that had a common plan to um, impose their own uh, ideology and religious vision in uh, northern Mali, specifically Timbuktu and the surrounding region. And in doing so, um, part of their strategy was very much to control women's lives. Um, these armed groups took control of uh, Timbuktu in April uh, 2012 and uh, for uh, a period of just less than a year until January uh, 2013, they imposed a new set of rules upon the local population. Um, and these rules um, had a disproportionate impact uh, and they were very much discriminatory against um, women. Um, these rules were their ways of imposing uh, um, their religious vision. Uh, and in doing so, the local population was subjected to both persecution on religious grounds and persecution on um, gender grounds. Um, and as uh, Taj said, a large part of the crimes that were uh, committed in, uh, uh, in that territory uh, were sexual and gender-based crimes. And we're talking specifically about rape, sexual slavery, um, forced marriages, and gender-based um, persecution. 
Now, your question about what's the difference between uh, sexual crimes and gender-based crimes, um, it's, it's a very important question and it has been at the forefront of the research agenda of many practitioners and researchers that are looking into this field of um, how to um, uh, end the impunity uh, regarding these types of, of crimes. And I'm afraid that there is no... Um, clear-cut answer that provides a delimitation between these, because many times sexual violence and gender-based violence um, overlap. Uh, but um, to, to put this a bit into perspective, for example, it's worth looking at recent civil society initiatives, such as the Women's Initiative for Justice campaign, Call It What It Is, which just last year published um, civil society declaration um, on the principle of um, sexual violence. So how to, how to identify what makes violence sexual? And in doing so, they have been... Uh, um, they have consulted a lot of survivors of sexual violence. Um, and one of uh, the things that they highlight um, is that there is no universal agreement of what makes violence sexual, because this is such a um, subjective understanding for, for different people. It really depends many times on the intention of the perpetrator, whether the perpetrator wanted the particular act to be sexual in nature, um, or uh, and how um, survivors perceived those acts to be or not um, sexual. So how does that all play out in the case of Al-Hassan? Um, so in the case of, of Al-Hassan, um, as I mentioned, we have rape and sexual slavery, uh, which are very much sexual, uh, sexual crimes, uh, but are also understood uh, in the DCC to be part of gender-based crimes because women were attacked and were subjected to these crimes very much based on their gender, so on how um, perpetrators viewed them and their role in society. Um, and then uh, we have forced marriages um, and gender-based persecution, um, which are easier to identify as uh, gender-based um, crimes because those crimes were uh, committed against women precisely because uh, women are part of a gender group that is associated with particular roles, behaviors and attitudes in society. This is a very interesting case because it's the first time ever that the ICC or any international tribu tribunal is actually adjudicating the crime of uh, gender-based um, persecution. And uh, it's also the first time that uh, the ICC, which is the first international tribunal ever to have in its uh, founding treaty uh, this concept of gender and to define it, that uh, the understanding of gender will be um, interpreted by, um, uh, by judges as well as, uh, of course, the prosecution and, uh, and the defense. Um, so a lot of um, uh, practitioners and activists uh, that are very interested in uh, this field of uh, accountability for uh, sexual and gender-based crimes um, are watching this case with uh, great interest, especially since the court has an interesting history when it comes to um, successfully prosecuting uh, cases of sexual um, uh, sexual 
and gender-based uh, violence. Let's remember that it was only um, last year that the court has had its first uh, conviction of rape and sexual slavery after Jean-Pierre Bemba's um, conviction for rape was um, overturned in 2018. I suppose what what it makes me wonder is uh, you say a lot of people have a lot of attention to this. It's, it's, it's a big and important thing. But are there also victims on the ground in Mali who are also pushing hard for their experiences to be explored in court? Is is that the sense that you get? Um, there isn't a lot of information available of how the victims are organized and how uh, the registry is, um, is managing this on the ground in Mali. Um, and I think one of the reasons is also because Mali is still uh, pretty much in a very volatile uh, situation from a security perspective. And it has been for uh, for many years, um, and this summer things have uh, gotten uh, even more complicated uh, since in um, August um, the, there was a coup that uh, overthrew the president uh, and the government, and now Mali has uh, a new transitional government. Yeah, it's a big background uh, against uh, which it's played. So, Stephanie, what would you like to ask now? Well, I was wondering if Thais maybe had some, or both of you generally, um, you know, would people advocate very loudly for this or would this be something that would be um, prosecuted in local courts? Um, I remember when Almadi was going on, there was a lot of pushback from NGOs that they weren't including these charges. So there was some kind of momentum for it. Is that mainly... Was it mainly coming from uh, us uh, practitioners and NGOs, or did that also come from the from the population and the victims? Do you think? I think I think it's such a difficult question um, because Mali has been sort of tainted by so many episodes of of different types of violence, um, whether it's civil war, whether it's persecution of of Tuareg people in the north. Um, what sort of was specific, I think, during the crisis in the insurgency between 2012 and 2013 is that these radicals, these Islamist radicals, sort of took over. And as, um, as was said already, we're sort of implementing their ideology. And basically, they created a, a, a caliphate in Timbuktu. And of course, they applied Islamic rule and based on the Quran and on the Hadith. And of course, all these scriptures have a very particular um, way of thinking about gender roles and how to deal with women. And I think specifically in this period, it came to the fore that um, a lot of these measures were harshly implemented. And for the first time, actually also the world was sort of made aware that this was one of the key features of what Ansardin and Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb were doing. Whether there were victims pressing for charges in this case um, is, is very unclear. I think Al-Hassan was sort of a, a catch luck for the ICC because he was already in prison and he was questioned for, for, for about a year already before he was even charged. And I think along the way, these charges were sort of included in the case because when we look at the trial now, it's mostly about him flogging men and... Um, 
executing judicial uh, decisions, which were not so much about the gender and sexual violence yet. Um, this, this may still go um, and, and be presented in the case. Um, and so far, we have heard from no victims at all during the trial. So we had no stories, uh, no experiences from, uh, from victims, either from sexual or gender-based violence or, or any of the other um, crimes that are charged in this case. So it's sort of blurry on, on how to perceive and how to sort of um, assess um, what, what the Malians, or, and especially victims, what their interest and what their stake is and whether they will actually come to the courts to, to also testify to this because the situation in Mali is very dire. Um, and then we have COVID. And so far, we only had uh, North European witnesses testify, so no Malians have been yet hurt in the case. So I think we still have to wait for that. Uh, and Georgiana, uh, just looking at, can you say something about the difficulty maybe of, of coming forward about uh, sexual and gender-based violence and, and why it's, it's potentially hard for these victims to, to come uh, forward and testify? Sure. Um, and, and just before I do that, perhaps one way of having... Um, a look into the future, so to say, of where the prosecution is going and the witnesses that uh, um, it might um, uh, want to call forward is to again look back at the at the DCC and see there um, exactly what are the acts that are underlying these sexual and uh, gender-based um, crimes. And just to um, add to what Taj was uh, was saying, so when we're talking about gender-based persecution, for example, we're looking Looking at granular um, acts that cum cumulatively um, have an effect that meets the gravity threshold for this to count as a crime against humanity. Um, and I'm talking here about uh, the rules that these armed groups had to uh, impose on the local population, particularly women. Um, so um, um, these, these are a strict, these were a strict dress code for uh, women, also for men who had to, um, cut, um, the bottom parts of uh, of their trousers, but women had to wear the veil. They had to wear gloves, for example, when they went to the market in order to avoid touching um, a man's hands when paying for the goods that they were buying, for example. There was a ban on music, on tobacco, on um, alcohol, drinking or possessing alcohol, on religious celebrations, on watching TV, uh, a ban on women going um, out without being accompanied by um, uh, men, a ban on women speaking with anyone other in public than their husbands um, or brothers. And there were harsh repercussions for those that were not respecting this um, these rules. And one of the organs of the armed groups that were uh, monitoring and ensuring that these rules were enforced was the Islamic police, um, uh, which uh, Al-Hassan is accused of uh, having been the de facto um, head. Um, so, um, now I forgot where I was going with this. Your question was, um, how, how it might be difficult for victims to come forward. Um, and in, in addition to, um, to all these, um, um, acts that represent fundamental deprivations, uh, of, that represent re deprivations of fundamental human rights recognized in, uh, international law, um, women were also subjected to um, um, 
the more uh, usual sexual crimes that we've been used to um, hearing at the ICC, so rape and sexual um, slavery, uh, for example. It's difficult for victims, um, any type of victim, any any victim, right, men or uh, uh, or women, to come forward and share with the world, really, um, the horrible experiences that uh, they have um, um, had during uh, the time that these armed groups were in control of uh, of their town. There is a lot of stigma attached with sexual uh, and gender-based um, crimes uh, for a society that uh, places um, a lot of uh, value on uh, honor, for example. Um, many witnesses that the emphasize that they were under a lot of pressure from uh, the from their community when they when women for example were forced to marry members of these uh, armed groups um, because um, many of these women were then uh, seen as uh, making some sort of uh, agreement with these armed groups um, in order to uh, protect uh, uh, their families so they were seen as making uh, this sort of uh, compromise um, but there was an incredibly coercive environment uh, in which uh, these type of actions um, were were taking place. And uh, women um, have been scarred for their entire lives for the experience that they have in these forced marriages, which um, often included um, being raped and even gang raped uh, by these armed uh, forces. Um, it, it's difficult to reconstruct your life after such an experience. Um, it's difficult to uh, remarry after um, a marriage has been uh, uh, has become uh, was made such a mockery uh, by uh, um, by these armed uh, armed groups. We've focused a lot uh, up until now on uh, what the prosecution has been saying, because obviously that's the stage of the trial. But we should also mention what's happening within the defence. Um, we had Melinda Taylor on the podcast, not to do with this particular case, but she's the lead defence counsel. We also had uh, one of her colleagues as well. But uh, there have been lots of changes of counsel, haven't there, Tice, um, and maybe you could say from what, what you've seen uh, in court, what, what, what's their strategy? Just give us a picture of what's going on from their side. Um, I think it's quite interesting in this case that, as you said, the, the defence team has been changing um, quite a lot. Melinda um, Taylor is the, is the, is the first, first counsel, of course, but uh, she had a duty counsel before. And ever since, she had six co-counsel, um, which is actually quite a lot. And I've never seen this in any other trial, which sort of suggests that there may be some issues within the defense. Um, we don't know yet. Um, the court has been asking questions about it, but always in private session. So it's sort of shielded away from the, from the public of, of what's going on. Um, I think one of their strategies, and, and they have many, of course, um, is first of all to say that Al-Hassan was, uh, was not a criminal um, and he was just doing what he was supposed to do at the time that he was a, a police commissioner um, in Timbuktu. And I think a very, very much, much more in, in urgent question is um, their allegation that Al-Hassan was tortured when he was in detention in Mali, um, up to a year perhaps, and also with the prosecution knowing about it, that he was tortured at the time that they were questioning him in Mali. And 
this is an issue that was sort of raised before the trial and then it was sort of dumped. So we don't know actually where these accusations are, are standing now and whether the chamber is still still thinking about it. Um, the prosecution hasn't responded to, to the allegations as well. But what we know is that Al-Hassan sort of doesn't feel very well. So basically before the start of the trial, um, defense were saying that he was not fit to stand trial. Um, during the case, sometimes he has to leave the room to take his medicine. So there, there, are, there are matters that are sort of concerning as, as to his health, um, although we don't know much about it. And of course, he's been assessed by some, by some experts, um, including psychologists. Um, but all this material, of course, is, is confidential. So, so we may actually not know so much about it. What I find sort of interesting in the case is that currently the OTP is very technical in its questions actually quite boring. It doesn't really get to substance. So it's been hearing experts and they just ask what their methodologies were and what the mistakes are in their reports. And specifically, Melinda Taylor is very, very good in her questioning and her cross-examination. Um, and basically, this is what you do during adversarial proceedings. You try to discredit the expert <laughs> on their expertise or what they have written, um, whether they have been to Mali anyway, whether they have been there uh, for, for long enough, and, and whether the, the evidence that they are giving is actually relevant to the case. And so far, a lot of the evidence that was given is sort of circumstantial. So yesterday we had a former director um, of, of UNESCO who was talking about mausoleums and how the destruction of those mausoleums may affect it. Malians, which of course has nothing directly to do with Al Hassan. So, I think for the for the defense, the case is going quite well because we haven't heard so much about Al Hassan and, and the crimes that he actually is alleged to have uh, have committed. So we're still out a little bit in a, in a limbo on on where we stand. Um, and of course, there's well, perhaps there will be a defense case. You never know at the ICC. Sometimes the case is stopped halfway, as we saw in Bakpo or, uh, or, or other cases. Um, and of course, now it's all about the cross-examination. And uh, so far, we've learned most of the substantial issues in the case, actually through the defense. So actually, the defense case is quite interesting because we really get a little bit under the skin of the experts and um, what they are saying and how the OTP has sort of solicited their, their expertise. And when we when we started, we had all these journalists uh, that were getting quite annoyed uh, with the defense because they kept uh, the defense kept asking for the receipts on uh, because they were showing video of going to the bank, which had which had been the Islamic uh, police headquarters, and uh, uh, there were some very terse exchanges between uh, Melinda Taylor and the and the and the witnesses where she was asking how they all documented and he just, the journalist just went, I'm just a journalist, I just took the documents, like I don't have to uh, have a chain of command and all that. We uh, had quite a lot of sympathy for that, didn't we, uh, Stephanie, as journalists ourselves, you know, just the, uh, you know, we don't always uh, uh, collect receipts along the way as we're we're going to places. We don't always uh, make uh, contem contemporaneous notes exactly of uh who said what to, what to whom. So, uh, yeah, we, we thought that was, uh, that was interesting. The, the, uh, the question that, um, that I wanted to ask also is, um, maybe to both of you, is about um, ju new jurisprudence. I mean, there's, again, you know, we know that we've neglected this trial, but 
yet again, we have a trial which kind of opens doors and says this is important and points a direction to new things. I mean, it seems to me like every every case at the ICC is like that. Is it is it like that for, for, for both of you? I mean, answer as you will. I think this just speaks to uh, the fact that these trials are taking place in a specific um uh in a specific time right like uh and the the crimes that they are adjudicating on reflect um new modus operandi um and it also reflects the fact that um international law international criminal law international human rights law is a living organism that evolves um, our understanding of um, these crimes, uh, especially when we're talking about other inhumane crimes, right, aspects of crimes against humanity, that were particularly um, uh, phrased like this in order to allow for new interpretations. So I would say that it's, um, it's just a natural consequences of how international law functions and how societies in general um, evolve. Uh, be that in terms of how um, uh, international law is uh, is written or how uh, perpetrators um, uh, choose to um, uh, fulfill the goal that uh, they have. Thais? Yeah, I think it's it's a great question, and, and Georgina already sort of sort of scares, sketched what is going on um, in in terms of in terms of the law, and I think if you look at the ICC specifically. I think the prosecution during the Ocampo Bensuda era, which is really one era I always see, um, is that they're chasing topics. And they're chasing topics because people would like to see them prosecute specific crimes. So, of course, in the beginning, we had Thomas Lubanga, who was charged only with child soldiering. Well, we know that in the DRC, he was also um, alleged to have committed genocide and crimes against humanity, perhaps even, even much bigger crimes than that he was prosecuted with. Um, in Bemba, of course, they went for, 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 for sexual crimes as well and gender-based crimes um, for which, of course, in the end, he was, he was acquitted um, because the evidence just didn't stick in the case. In other trials, you also see that they're quite topical. Um, you know, it's poli- for political violence, saying that um, leaders shouldn't use violence to, to stay in power and all those kind of things. Um, in Almadi, it was all about the destruction of cultural heritage, perhaps a little bit telling a story of cultural genocide as well. And I think this sort of was sort of interesting in, in that case. And in this case, they sort of choose to, to focus much more on, on the gender-based and, and sexual violence. And, and the ICC can do so because it's an adversarial court. So basically what it has to do is sell a story to a judge. And it's not so much inquisitorial and... If that were the case, the charges could have actually been very different. And of course, this, I think this is a bit of a problem at the ICC is where, yes, of course, they should prosecute these crimes because they're very important and, and grave. But it's always or sometimes it's very difficult to support it um, actually with actual evidence. And I'm sort of concerned as well in this trial that, that this may actually happen again, um, as we saw in Bemba, where, where, of course, the evidence wasn't supportive uh, enough. So yeah, there's a little bit of concern, but of course we also understand that sort of the ICC is there also as a public institution that is sort of to 
uh, pay lip service to its constituency, which are NGOs, which are civil society. And of course, they're pressing for, for very specific charges and, and topics to be included in, in cases. Whether that works in a criminal proceeding, I think that still remains uh, to be questioned. Now, the court is now basically closed uh, due to COVID nineteen, as all the all the everything is almost all done online. Um, we know that, so a lot of practitioners are watching this. Well, we see Thais tweet about it, and Georgiana also tweeted about it. So we see it on on international law Twitter. But to be honest, mostly Thais tweeting daily about what he sees in, in the in the in the. In the prosecution case, but do you think it's it's followed by many um, in Mali? I think we already talked about unrest in Mali and just general uh, technical problems in general uh, in Mali. Uh, I lived in Senegal for two years, and even it's hard to get internet up and running, even if you're in Dakar, which is very well equipped for that kind of thing. So I imagine it must probably more, be more difficult in Timbuktu. I think I think it's an excellent question, and you sort of hit hit the nail where it hurts the most. Um, we saw even during the the interviews of uh, of the candidates for for prosecution position, where we had the Ugandan candidate who was skyping in from from Uganda, where the internet wasn't working well, um, which led, of course, to a lot of issues. I think the same would would play out in Mali. Um, it's it's one of the poorest countries in the world. It's it's not very well connected to to the global internet. Um, even in the Netherlands, you sort of have to struggle to get a good connection to follow the live stream of the ICC. So, I, I really doubt whether people in Mali um, are able to follow it in 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 any way. Um, even even secondhandedly through journalists, because journalists, of course, cannot travel to, to The Hague to actually go and sit on the public gallery and see what's going on um, in, in the courtroom and report on the case um, back in Mali. So I actually think the, the trial really plays out in, in, in a sort of a double quarantine. Um, it really is secluded to, to The Hague um, courtroom, um, to live streams, and it only hears Western... Um, witnesses. So actually, it's also not a Malian story being told in the trial, um, not by Malians. Um, it's also not so much about Mali. It's it's very technical. So I'm slightly concerned whether there is actually interest at all um, or access to, to this case in, in Mali. Um, and then, of course, come next to that, there there are other crises to attend. Um, there There is continuing insecurity. Um, even this morning, Reuters reported again on, on an attack where it, which killed over a dozen people. So, so the violence hasn't stopped um, in any way. There was a coup in, in August. So there there's so many um, contemporary issues that may actually overshadow a trial that deals with already a seven-year-old um, history of, of, uh, of, of crime and atrocity. Um, so yeah, I think we should be a little bit concerned about who actually is the audience of this trial? Is it us experts and, and civil society and NGOs and, and those who sort of are, are interested in international criminal justice or are, are it Malians and, and Malian citizens and specifically Timbuktians, um, as you said, yeah. And maybe this will be interesting for the audience. 
This trial is taking place at a moment when there is a huge pushback against gender as a concept and gender equality uh, overall. Uh, there are many countries around the world, including EU members, so democratic states, that have uh, started a real fight against this concept of gender. Um, I'm looking at Eastern European states, for example, that are um, planning to withdraw from the West Istanbul Convention, the Council of Europe Convention that um, aims to eliminate violence against women and domestic violence, which at its core, in order to do so, um, promotes gender equality and education for gender equality. And there are states such as Hungary and Poland that have a real allergy when it comes to words such as this. In Romania earlier this summer, um, in my home country, the parliament passed a bill that banned um, any activities that would promote the theory or opinion of gender in educational institutions or institutions that um, um, in which professional development uh, activities uh, take uh, take place. So it's an interesting case because the ICC, so you have an international criminal tribunal that is adjudicating on on this uh, on this crime, and it has it within its statute uh, that um, states that are party to the ICC have have ratified, and yet the same states when it comes to their domestic uh, uh, policies and legislations are taking a huge issue with this whole concept uh, of gender and are threatening to uh, withdraw or are planning to withdraw from um, conventions uh, that have at its core uh, provisions related to um, gender equality. I think it's um, time to now uh, wrap up uh, the discussion. And um, first question to either of you is, uh, is there anything that we should have asked? That, uh, that we didn't get round to? What would you have liked to have said that we forgot to ask you? <laughs> I think there's one thing that's very particular about this trial. And I think it's also slightly concerning is that today we've heard the 14th witness. Um, they're all experts, but most of this trial is taking place in secrecy. So most of the, the witnesses are actually protected for whatever reason. So you have French experts on hand, handwriting who don't want their names to be known. It's it's totally totally ridiculous that we are also not told why they want to uh, maintain secrecy. Um, so so I think this is a thing that's that's really concerning to us um, because we want public trials and we want also public scrutiny, um, especially when we deal with such sensitive issues. It's it's good that we can also know what's, uh, what it is about, who the experts are, uh, why they are testifying. Um, I, find, I find it really curious um, as to why the, the court has made uh, this decision. I've understood that several of the, the witnesses themselves have, have asked for uh, anonymity, including perhaps the only really interesting witness so far who was a political scientist, um, who sort of really got to the substance um, of, of, uh, of the context of the case. But, um, you know, handwriting experts, why, why are they anonymous? I, I, I really don't understand. Um, another thing, and, and I think it's sort of interesting, uh, Stephanie, wherein you, you sort of talked about the, the journalists. It's also quite curious why these journalists are being called. So the first witness was Harold Dornbos, who lives in the United Arab Emirates. And he was flown in to The Hague to testify about how he walked into a building, picked up a document and walked out of the building. So it's also 
sort of interesting to see what the relevance of of the testimony is so far. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm I'm quite curious, and of course, Corona has has something to do with it. So you have to sort of schedule the witnesses that are available and can travel to the Hague or um, or have an internet connection that's sort of reliable, so you can uh, testify from a distance. Um, so yeah, um, I hope. We'll have much more openness um, from the second block of uh, of the case, uh, during which we may expect actually Almadi to testify, which is going to be a very interesting part of the case. Georgiana, what did we uh, leave out that you want to highlight? You mentioned already that this case, although uh, we 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 look at it in an ICC uh, prism, uh, also has wider implications for this uh, description of gender. Is there anything else that we are not putting enough spotlight on? Perhaps I would also highlight that uh, the crime of gender-based persecution is uh, um, also in focus in a preliminary examination uh, at the ICC, and that is uh, the one in uh, Nigeria. And we've seen in the past, um, in the last two reports uh, on uh, the prosecutor's preliminary examination, that... um, uh there is uh, uh there seems to be reasonable um uh basis to believe that there are there is evidence um that gender based persecution uh, has been committed by both um boko haram and national security forces in nigeria that's another thing to i think that it's worth uh, looking at um because interestingly in um in that particular preliminary examination, the prosecutor is looking at gender-based persecution against both uh, men and uh, women. That's another uh, situation that it's worth um, keeping an eye on. Uh, but of course, it remains to be seen whether the prosecution, the OTP will uh, decide uh, to open investigation or not. And... Uh- Final question. Uh, Stephanie, I'm just going to miss out the big things we learn from because we've got so much going on here. This is such a, a deep podcast. Um, so our last question then to both of you, again, take it in any order you want, is what have you been listening to, reading or watching recently that you would like to recommend to the audience? And it doesn't have to be at all uh, international criminal law related. It can be um, some of our favourites are to do with zombies. So whatever you feel like. Uh, I'm I'm currently lead, reading Evicted by Matthew Desmond. Um, it's uh, a book that actually won um, a Pulitzer Prize a few years uh, ago. Um, it uh, it looks at uh, destitution and housing insecurity in uh, low-income communities uh, in uh, in the U.S. Um, it's looking at how profitable evictions are. Uh, for those that are engaged in uh, in letting um, rooms and uh, and houses, uh, even in in very poor, poor uh, communities, um, as I said, this book was written a few years ago. But I think it's a very interesting time to be reading it now because with the pandemic, there is a tsunami of evictions now. That many of the measures that sought to keep people in their homes. Um, um, expired or are about to uh, to expire, um, and it just sheds light on uh, the the human suffering and costs of this um, of these processes. Because even evictions are, in the end, judicial processes. 
Thijs? Apart from watching really trashy shows on Netflix to, to sort of uh, cope with uh, with the corona crisis. Um, I recently picked up a really nice book by Daniel van Groenwegen, which is uh, Red Rubber. And it's a book that is published, republished actually um, from 1985. And it sort of discusses the history of King Leopold in the Congo Free State um, in, the, in the late 19th century. And he bases himself, and it's actually quite interesting for, for international law people as well, he bases his uh, research on the testimony and the inquiry by the uh, Commission of Inquiry of 1904-1905 that sort of was traveling on the Congo River and hearing from, from over 300 witnesses, um, which sort of um, started the end of, of uh, Leopold's reign in, in the Congo. Um, I think on this topic as well, I think a great book that I've, I've read last year is Maza Mengistu's The King's Shadow which is about um, Ethiopia's fight against Italy's um, aggressive war in the 1930s and 40s, and specifically the role of women in that. And Megist is such a great writer, and I would really recommend everybody just to pick up the book and read it. Okay, so thank you both very much for uh, catching up. Uh, Stephanie, anything else from you? No, I'm uh, dumbstruck by all the information I got. I'm very happy that I now kind of know what's going on, and... uh, I would imagine that the things that Thais highlights uh, of the lack of um, open sessions and the basing it a lot on experts is going to get very interesting in this trial down the road because I'm sure that's not something that Melinda Taylor is going to take lying down and so the defense will be very, very interesting. So we'll keep an eye on that and thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe give us a rating and spread the word.